Welcome to episode six of the Global Ghetto. I'm your host, Bell, and today I'm joined by Professor Christopher Cam, who studies comparative political institutions. Professor Cam will be sharing his knowledge on the demographic transition that countries around the globe are currently experiencing and the economic, social, and political implications that aging populations have on current regimes. So I know we covered demographic decline extensively in class, but for those listening who maybe don't know the details or have never really done the research on this topic, can you talk a little bit about what's happening to countries around the world in terms of demographics and how we got here? Yeah, there's there's sort of two groups of countries. So you can think about uh, advanced economies, of course, North America, Western Europe, uh, we have to put China and uh, a lot of South a- uh, Southeast Asia, South Korea, Japan in, in, in that one group. And then the other group will have uh, developing economies. Africa is the, the main set of countries in that group, but also India is a really important uh, element of that second set of countries. In, in this first set of countries, uh, what is happening are populations are aging quite rapidly because of uh, a lot of medical advances that happened over the past 40, 50 years, people are having longer lives, and birth rates have fallen a lot. So as a result, populations in the first set of countries are both aging, and in some places like Italy and Spain uh, and China are starting to shrink. In the second set of countries, what we're seeing is that they're still growing in terms of population. So if you look at the globe as a whole, uh, population is still increasing, but that growth is in the second set of countries. So African countries, for example, have very high birth rates still that are reminiscent of birth rates that existed in, in, in Europe back in the 1800s. But eventually, what's going to happen is this second set of countries are going to go through the same sort of demographic transition that the advanced economies are going through. Birth rates will decline, life expectancy is probably, you know, assuming economic growth continues, is going to be extended. And we're going to see population in the in the sort of medium term, if we talk about 40 or 50 years, it's very likely to decline worldwide. I wanted to talk about the cultural aspect of this decline in birth rates. So we know that virtually every OECD country has a fertility rate below the population replacement rate. And it's as low as 0.84 in South Korea. And I was reading something mm-hmm. the other day yep. that talked about how there's a chance that South Koreans might actually go extinct because they're not having children and very, very few South Koreans want children. And in 2022, only Israel and Mexico had a total fertility rate at or above the 2.1 children per woman needed for population replacement, which is nearly double Oh, and Israel's fertility rate is um, 2.9, which is nearly double Canada's. And I did some research to find out why Israel's fertility rate is so high, because their maternity leave is only three months compared to Canada, which is 18. And housing and grocery prices are still very high. So it's not like Israelis aren't facing economic pressure. But the reason appears to be, yeah, the reason appears to be cultural. The article that I read said that observant Jews have an average of four children, while secular women have an average of two. And anyone who lives in Israel is expected to have children. You know, like people will ask you how many children you have. If you say one, they'll be like, oh, why only one? And if you say two, they'll be like, why only two? So the family really is at the center of Israeli life. 
And there is tremendous cultural value placed on getting married and having kids. So I was just wondering how much of the demographic transition that rich, advanced democracies are experiencing is due to a cultural shift in how we think about the value of children. Um, because in most Western societies, well, children are seen as like an expensive burden and there is no cultural emphasis on family to override that sentiment. I think we have to be, if you look in the longer run, there's two mm -hmm. powerful and contending forces that determine sort of the number of children exist in a family. And taking a much longer run view, the correlation between economic development and fertility is pretty strong, right? I mean, people have large families in poor economies. I mean, that's, that's, you can mm -hmm. take it to the bank, right? Right. So if we, if we did a, a scatter plot where we put countries GDP per capita on the x-axis and then their total fertility rate on the y-axis, you would end up with a pretty strong linear relationship. It, mm -hmm. would be, it would be negative. Poor countries, big families. And as families or as the country gets richer, the total fertility rate drops and the family size drops quite a bit. So I think that it's uh, they, we should be very careful about ascribing culture as the driving factor here. It, it exists alongside economics, right? Mm -hmm. Now, so you brought up Mexico. Mexico is one of the examples I have here. So in, in 1970 or something, Mexico's total fertility rate was 4.71. So, so that meant that over her lifetime, um, in her uh, fertile years, a, a Mexican woman would have somewhere between four and five children, mm -hmm. 1970. And it is now, 2020, it's down to 1.9. It's bounced up a little bit since then, but a very, very small amount. But the point is, it's declined mm -hmm. in, in that time by a lot. Now, do we think Mexican culture has shifted that much in 50 years? I mean, we shouldn't put that first hypothesis that culture has shifted that much aside. But GDP per capita in Mexico is vastly increased between 1970, when it went from the richest of the poor countries to really a solid middle income country. And now sort of it's, it's an advanced economy, maybe mm -hmm. not the richest, but people in Mexico are vastly better off now than they were in 1970. What's cultural, I think, about the demographic transition this time really is the widespread both use, availability, and acceptance of contraception. Mm -hmm. um, now, societies have always practiced forms of contraception, going back way back, right? There's ways to do this, but it's now much more both available and acceptable for women to take control of the reproductive process. And they have. Mm -hmm. And you see the effects of this in places like India, where total fertility rate has gone down just as dramatically as Mexico. Now, you've mentioned some exceptions, Israel. I mean, it's not just the religious communities in Israel that have large families, right? It's clear mm -hmm. that the religious the Orthodox Jewish communities have larger families, but on average, Israelis have large families relative to families in other advanced economies. We know that this is true in the United States, too religious people tend to have more kids. Now, there's two contending views about that, right? So one could could see that this is, uh, you could make an argument that religious people just have a whole more hopeful, psychologically satisfying view of the world and life and are happy to bring kids into it. Or you could say that this is a, what, what tends to go along with hyper-religious communities are uh, less autonomy for women. Mm -hmm. Right? And, and mm -hmm. so I'm going, yeah, that's, that, that would be culture for you. 
whether that's a good thing, I think is is a very highly contingent. I, I just want to say that the culture and economics work together, and they're not. We shouldn't think of them also as independent. Like culture will mm -hmm. adapt to economic realities. So what we tend to see is that as economies develop, family size declines, but also the norms of what constitutes a sort of socially appropriate family size then change. It's not that culture is merely epiphenomenal to economics because these things change at a lag. There'll be resistance, and then there'll be groups within a society who will be quite immune from economic pressures, religious people, for example. I can definitely see the way that culture and economics are tied together because in class we talked about post-materialism and how once you get to a certain economic status, then the things that you prioritize are fundamentally different from what previous generations would prioritize. And you brought up the topic of contraception. So I was just wondering, is demographic transition, can it be considered an inevitability? Because um, once you give women the freedom and the choice and the agency to make their own decisions, and once a country, you know, becomes rich and advanced and industrialized, does that imply that families or children being born or the amount of children being born will always shrink? I've seen sort of two conflicting pieces of evidence on this. One, there was a piece in the Lancet, a medical journal, and it, it showed world population projections for the next 50 years. And these projections, if you look at just the demographics, we can make pretty good projections over the medium term. If you, if you said world population going to be in 25 years, we're going to make really good predictions about, on that on the basis of three variables. One, once you've got a, a population distribution in place, right, you can pretty much project it for the next 20, 30 years straightforwardly. The other two variables, if my memory serves, were access that women had to education, even simply mm -hmm. primary education, right? And then their access to contraception. And those three variables allowed you to make a prediction with it that was 80% accurate. So it's very clear that, that on that basis, I can infer a couple of things from that. And one is that women's agency over their bodies is a really important part of demography. I, and I think, remember, there are these two sets of countries I set out, right? Advanced mm -hmm. democracies where total fertility is on average well below replacement levels of 2.1. And these developing countries where it's still above and in some places well above 2.1. And I would say that what we observe is that in the latter countries, family size is much larger than women would prefer. And when women in developing countries get access to contraception, they use it and, and family size declines. We took a long time to have the total fertility rate in places like the United Kingdom, the United States decline down to below replacement. Mm -hmm. And that decline is happening much faster in developing countries. Why? Because we can have the distribution of condoms and birth control pills, particularly the latter, because that's that's a, a contraception the woman controls. So that decline is happening faster in developing countries than it previously happened in developed countries. Now, there, there's some other evidence I've seen that says if you survey women in advanced democracies, I saw a survey one in Canada just recently that says that Canadian women are having about on average, they estimate about half a child less than they would like. So I think the ideal family size in Canada is supposed to, like if you ask people, oh, a married couple, what would be their ideal family size? Oh, they want two kids. And many are not having two kids. They're having one. 
so and in these kind of surveys I've seen before, they're not they're not sui generis. You see them all the time. And so in advanced democracies, it looks like economic pressures are such that or, or some other pressures I, I, in South Korea. I don't think it's just economics or Japan. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that there are still a lot of societal expectations that if, if you have a kid in Japan or South Korea as a woman, you stop your career forever. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's you don't. It's not. It's not like you just take five years off or four years off, get the little mm -hmm. one into daycare and come back to your career. I think that's a real cultural break on fertility in those countries. But the point is that that we have places where women seem to want fewer children than they currently have. That's in many developing economies, and then places where women are having, for some reason, cultural or economic, a little too few children than they would like. And it's very clear in, in these developed democracies. Now, women in those countries, in Sweden, in South Korea, United States, all, France, and all these places, they have complete agency over their bodies. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, relatively, like they can go into any health clinic, pharmacy, get a birth control pill, get a morning after pill and the like. And a, you know, it's not a controversial or hard to do thing. Yeah, I, so that's why I'm saying it's just this mixed picture. And these two, these two sets of countries have to be kept in, in mind. And on that note, if women in developing countries are having more kids than they would like, and is a potential solution or a potential path for them to immigrate to developed countries where they can not exactly get socialized into the environment, into the cultural environment there, but they can take like low skilled jobs, which coincidentally is what we is also what we need to fill the labor gap when it comes to this demographic that is being created by this demographic um, transition. But we also know that there are intergenerational changes. So for example, the kid of a first generation immigrant in Canada will not want the same low skilled jobs as their parents will, and they will grow up with the same cultural values as their peers. So in the long run, demographics won't exactly change, even if immigration is being implemented. That's a lot. There's lots to unpack there. So let's start with immigration from high fertility countries to low fertility countries. Mm -hmm. I, I think people don't quite get how rapidly these pressures are decelerating. I saw uh, something from, uh, it wasn't the Pew Center, but it was a think tank. Emigration from Mexico to the United States mm -hmm. has already declined a, a great deal. Why? One, there used to be surplus labor in Mexico, mm -hmm. and there is no longer. The fertility rate in Mexico has fallen that fast, and Mexico's economy is developed enough that many more young Mexicans can find good jobs at home in Mexico. Mm. So there's no and, incentive and, to immigrate. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And as I said, that's happened within 50 years, and it's actually, if you, if you look at the, the data, it's happened a lot quicker than that. However much we might, you know, the Americans might want to build walls to, to uh, you know, emigrating from Mexico to the United States in, pro in sort of terms of proximity, that's one of the easiest migration routes you can imagine. I mean, you just walk across a border, mm -hmm. a huge, big, big one. Now it's guarded heavily, but it's huge. Mm -hmm. Think about how much harder it's going to be from somebody in sub-Saharan Africa to emigrate to the United States. They got to get across oceans. and stuff. So it's much harder. And I'm saying... If we look at places like Mexico, I think Mexico gives you a good idea of sort of the future of many of these places in developing economies. 
where we see fertility rates still quite high, but they're going down quick, going down quick. India is another good example. I mean, so India is important because it's like the, the big, most populous country in the world. And it still mm -hmm. has a, a relative to many developing or developed countries, a very large cohort of young people. But I mean, you could just go and look, you know, total fertility rate in India. Now, if we if we go on to Google and say, you know, what's the total fertility rate in India in in 2022? It's I, I mean, I'm getting this from macro trends, which gets the either the UN or the World Bank data. And it's it's 2.16. Mm -hmm. OK, so so in India, we're already down to at replacement. And that's the most populous country in the world. Another big country like Nigeria is well above that still. I think the the pool of people available to immigrate from developing to developed economies is declining. It's declining very fast. And so I'm like, oh, and where are these people coming from? They're going to have to come not from Mexico or places very proximate to the United States. They're going to have to come from Africa. Africa is a big place. It's very, very hard, very hard to get from Nigeria to Western Europe. So I'm, I'm like, I actually think that that we're going to get we're going to see globally what we saw in the United States. You're going to get a surge of immigration. We might be going through that now, and then it's going to very quickly die off. In mm -hmm. some cases, I'm talking because it's demographics, literally, right? Because mm -hmm. people are getting older so much faster. The, the second part of this immigration story is that the type of labor that we might or might not need in advanced, developed economies. It's, it's not clear what kind of labor we're going to need. And if the human capital available in places like sub-Saharan Africa with a surplus of young people is a good match. So, so that's, that's another big problem. We may have economies that require people that are highly skilled. I mean, we may have, have some jobs that are, are very simple, arduous, and are very difficult to automate. Those are the mm -hmm. kind of jobs that we're going to have, that really we're going to struggle with. But... I mean, I read a book this summer, which really influenced my thinking on this is uh, really what we're going to need is is a lot of people to do old age care. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I read a statistic that in Sweden, which has a place with small families, aging society, there are close to 1 million people, 65 and older, like 900,000 people living alone. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that's fine when you're 65. And of course, we know the Swedes are fit and they keep active and all that stuff. But once you hit a certain age, you need some help. And now mm -hmm. that's not highly skilled labor because you need people who help you buy groceries or help you across the street or take you to your doctor's appointment. You know, you need something to drive you around, help you lift heavy things, mm -hmm. stuff like that. I mean, the problem you face is that if the demographic transition goes to these develop what are developing countries now, like as Mexico did, if you're a young Mexican, you can now get a good job at staying at home in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Why do you want to go to like Germany or someplace like mm -hmm. that and work at a low wage in old age care? Yeah. Right. I am sure I'm sure we're going to have some people who are altruistic. They love doing this stuff and they're great at it and we desperately need them. But these are not these are not high paid positions. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I just I'm kind of like. Yeah, the, the 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 economic incentive is is going to decline. The economic incentive to immigrate is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. In my mm -hmm. view, yeah, they're not high paying jobs, 
Um, and in economic terms, they're also unproductive because caring for like an 80 year old yeah. with dementia who is not themselves productive, the caregiver yeah, could be doing yeah. another more productive job. So I was just wondering like, how yeah. would countries reckon with that? Because at the same time, you need a lot of caregivers because you have an aging population. But at the same time, the jobs that those caregivers are doing are unproductive, which is also hurting the economy. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we should say right away that these are jobs that, um, I mean, when we say they're unproductive, of course, we mean that in a purely economic sense. These are jobs that are, are incredibly valuable, especially for the old people who are being taken care of. Right. But, but you're right. They're, they're unproductive. I mean, all else equal, if we could take somebody who's a caregiver for an 80 year old, who is no longer contributing to the economy in a productive sense, in the economic sense, um, mm -hmm. And we could have that person instead be a school teacher training eight-year-olds to do mathematics or reading and writing from an economic perspective. <laughs> the latter is, is infinitely more preferable. Uh, mm -hmm. Even if we take simply an economic perspective and go, what is the return on our investment of having this person turning them from a, a caregiver for a very old person to a teacher of young people? We'd go, well, the return on investment for the latter option is likely to be significantly greater. Um, mm -hmm. Or even um, even a, a, a caregiver, even an orderly in a hospital where you're taking people who hurt themselves on the construction site and you're rehabilitating them to get back into the economy. Again, that is productive. It, this is where I start being much more interested as a political scientist in this, because I'm not an economist and I'm not a demographer. But what is going to happen, and we're starting to see it now, is that we like old people are not productive in in the sense that they are no longer active in the labor force the other thing is they are they are people who survive on savings or fixed incomes in the main uh and they are spending what they 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 are doing is they're no longer saving their money uh from their we should say they're no longer saving their incomes they are spending them Right. I mean, mm -hmm. ideally, I think the ideal is, you know, whatever you want to leave to your kids, you leave to your kids. But increasingly, people are not having kids. So the ideal is that you drop dead the day you spend your last dollar, I think mm -hmm. is sort of the ideal. Right. But this what this means is that we're going to have two two dynamics that are at work here. One, we're going to have smaller labor forces wow. holding technology constant. Those smaller labor forces can't produce more goods than a larger labor force. So the flow of goods that we produce is going to be relatively constant. But the demand for goods or services is going to increase because these old people are liquidating their savings, mm -hmm. right? So they're going to want a variety of goods and services, now a particular type, because old people have different tastes and, and needs than young people. But we're going to have this injection of liquidity into the economic system, and we're not going to have more goods. So one argument I read um, in the summer was that we're going to have structural inflation. The authors I read this summer, the, they were uh, Charles Goodhart and um, Manoj Pradhan, make an argument that what we're going to have over the next sort of 20 odd years as sort of the baby boomers liquidate their retirement savings over time is structural inflation. And that they argue that that's already started. They said COVID just accelerated this. It's, it's, it's already here. I think that that's, uh, that's going to present some real challenges. One, in, in, in the, the problem we're going to face is that old people are once helping to generate this inflation because they're liquidating all their savings and spending them. 
right? Mm -hmm. And you know, inflation's more money chasing, too much money chasing too few goods. So the problem is old people are on fixed incomes in the main. They want low inflation, but they're fueling the inflation. And so this is gonna be, present a problem. Be, they're gonna demand a monetary policy that is inconsistent with sort of the nature of the economy and we inhabit. It's not clear to me how, I gotta think through this about how young people will react to this, this environment. On one hand, they're gonna be, and I, I'm not enough of an economist, I gotta sit down and, and reread my basic economic, uh, economics books. We're mm -hmm. going to be in a situation where monetary policy is gonna be demanded by old people to be quite orthodox and preserve the value of money. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, it's going to, the environment is going to be in, inherently inflationary. The other part of this is that wages, there's going to be upward pressure on wages. Why? As the cohort of young people shrinks, there's going to be too few people for the available jobs. Again, holding technology constant. Mm -hmm. So wait, you know, that, that means we're going to bid up. Employers will bid up the price of labor. So, so that's a good news story. If you're a younger worker, you can probably expect your wages to to increase, whether they'll increase in real terms, I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. The bad news is probably, well, your first house is going to have a mortgage that's a lot, you know, you're never going to have a 2% mortgage again. Right. These are going to be probably closer to the historical rate of inflation of, of 5%. In light of all of that, is the solution then, or is a potential solution to raise the retirement age, which incidentally is what France recently tried, which yeah. the voters did not take very well to that at all. Yeah, yeah, but from I, what I read, I they, they, they <laughs> want to upset. try to raise the <laughs> retirement age from 62 to 64 without a vote. And from what I read, France currently spends 14.5% of its GDP on pensions, which is almost double what the US yeah. spends. And, I, and yeah. they already ruled out raising taxes to fund these pension checks. However, raising the retirement age is sure. clearly not being met with much enthusiasm either so i was just wondering like right. yeah yeah so i was just wondering like like what so, economic so, policy would work in this case a, an economist and a political scientist might put that last word work in quotation marks and use it quite differently i, I don't know like like if you think of, of a benevolent social planner and you're going okay what would be the ideal policy to main like i, I don't know what you want to hold constant you want to hold constant taxes and implicitly the contributions that current workers are making to retirees or future retirees' pensions? Do you want to hold benefits constant? So it depends what you're trying to optimize here, mm. right? And, and you've got a bunch of different interests. Uh, an economist would then say, okay, how can we weight all these interests to achieve some goal, right? A political scientist is going to go, well... Whoever's got most votes and shows up at the polls is going to get the policy that works for them. And that is going to be what constitute works in this, right? right. There, there's no social optimum here. There is a struggle over a distribution. Let's take first a purely policy, sort of economic and policy perspective and go, let's assume that what we want to do is we want to try hold contributions constant, like at least... A, a, marginal contributions, not the total amount of contributions a worker will, will give into the pension pot, but what mm -hmm. they pay every year, for example. Mm -hmm. And let's try hold benefits constant. Mm -hmm. And and if we if we hold pension benefits and contributions constant, 
then the only variable that we can change here is the pensionable age, right? The age limit at which you receive a full, full pension without penalty. Uh, uh -huh. And many countries have, in fact, increased their pensionable age. Yeah. France is having uh, the darndest time trying to do that. They've succeeded legislatively, but not obviously politically. Italy just did it. Italy raised it. And in Denmark, I was reading the other night that, that they've linked their pensionable age to changes in life expectancy which is an extremely rational policy. So, so countries are doing it, but they're almost always doing it in like increasing it by maybe two years from 62 to 64, as in France. I think they raised it from 63 or 64 to 65 in Italy. So it was, mm -hmm. it was the, it's normally by one or two, typically countries are not doing this pragmatic Danish policy. What they're doing is adjusting it upwards by one or two years paper I read said, look, if you want to hold constant the effective old age dependency ratio, the effective means how many retirees relative to how many workers, you would have to, across the OECD, raise retirement ages by eight and a half years. So in a place like the United States, that means work from 65 yeah. to, to 73 or 74. Indeed, in the United States, I read another, uh, another economist blog post last night said that if they don't raise contributions soon, like if they kept everything constant, Social Security in the United States will be broke by 2033. Mm -hmm. It'll be bankrupt. So you got mm -hmm. two choices. They could institute, like they got across the board tax increase of 5% would solve the problem. So you can imagine, I mean, one way to do it, I don't expect the United States to do this ever, but would be adopting a, 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 a GST like in Canada of 5%. And then throw all that money into Social Security. That would solve the problem. But the other the other way to do it is you would have to cut benefits by a quarter to a third. That's a huge cut in benefits. Yeah. There are a lot of old people relative to young people. Mm -hmm. In the United States, it's a much even more even balance than in some countries. But old people mm -hmm. show up and vote much more regularly than young people. And believe me, they care about their pensions a lot more. They have an intent and preferences. They're very cohesive and very politically active on these issues. So if you mm -hmm. ask me over the next 20 years, who is going to win the battle over pensions? I would say old people are going to win on average. Governments, mm -hmm. though, will often work, work by stealth. And so what they'll mm -hmm. do is they'll partially de-index pensions from inflation so that the, in real terms, pensions decline. Uh, what they did in Canada in the 1990s was they increased, like if you were working in Canada in the 90s, you you found out somewhere around the late 90s, we increased our CPP contributions by quite a lot. And mm. that built up a massive pension fund that we can invest. And instead of using current work taxes on current workers to fund current retirees, we can actually pay retirement benefits out of this investment fund that generates, you know, seven, eight, ten percent returns a year. There are ways mm -hmm. to do it, but you had to start those doing those things 15, 20 years ago. If you're starting them now, governments are in a real bind. What I find very curious in France is that young people are so four squarely behind the pensioners in keeping the pension age low. I think it's just mind-boggling to me. I, I clearly don't get the French mindset here, because if you're a young person, I don't know why you would support keeping pensions, pension ages low, keeping yeah. benefits high. I just, yeah. I don't get it. It is, that's a complete transfer of wealth from young to old. And in mm -hmm. the main, 
well, well, people talk about senior poverty and all that in the main, it's, it's a regressive transfer of wealth in the main, because mm-hmm. younger people tend to be poorer in terms of incomes and assets than older right. people. And the people who you're really subsidizing with this are not actually the people who are retired now. It's the people mm-hmm. who are going to be retired in 10 years. That's who you're really paying for. Clearly, some countries have managed to affect this, these pension reforms. Mm-hmm. But to the extent countries have not done so, I think they're going to become very fraught politics because it's one thing to raise the, just imagine that figure I gave you, that to keep this old age, effective old age dependency ratio constant, you'd have to raise the entire retirement age by eight and a half years. Mm-hmm. If you manage, it, it's one thing to get people to put off retirement for one year, right? Maybe two. I don't think there's any way a government could go, oh yeah, we're going to increase it by five years. Yeah, no. <laughs> I just think that's nonsense. And when the, the current Canadian government won the election over the Conservatives, I think it was 2015, one of the things they did was to, well, the Harper government had increased the qualification, age qualification for old age security to mm-hmm. 67 years. And the Trudeau government immediately ruled it back to 65, which is sort of smart politics, but terrible policy. And I, I think that's sort of the dilemma you're going to have between the economic perspective on this problem and mm-hmm. the political perspective is that old people are a large active political constituency so there's mm-hmm. always going to be this incentive for one political party to play to that crowd and, and so yeah I, I think what happens is you have to get to a crisis point where the pension fund's going to go bankrupt and then mm-hmm. you'll get some action yeah it's interesting because what you mentioned about young people protesting that Um, raising the retirement age because as the tax burden falls on an increasingly smaller and smaller cohort, we, or technically my generation, will be the ones bearing the brunt of that. But at the same time, we are also not having as many kids. So we're kind of like kicking ourselves. But at the same time, I just don't see how, back to the question of contraception, like I just don't see that changing anytime soon, like that mindset of having children. It's just really complicated and just everything is interconnected. But uh, So I'm willing to make projections about the next 20 years. The demographics and economics and the politics are all fairly predictable for the next 20 years. I mean, because I mean, I was just looking at some data uh, mm-hmm. on the UK and Italy on, on the propensity to vote. And I mean, I'm looking at this data, people in Britain, like voters in Britain. So up until their 89th birthday, so up until 89 years of age, people are still pretty active voters. I mean, people who are in the 85 to 89 cohort in Britain at the last election participated, they, they voted at uh, 85%. Yeah. And then after 89, once you get to the 90s, it drops right off, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So, so the people, the set of people, this, the cohort gets smaller. Turns out your participation rate for people over 100 in Britain is zero. <laughs> but there's only four or 5,000 of them in the electorate. So you have to, or in the, in the country, right? But it looks, it looks to be that after, after 90, that's when mm-hmm. the participation rate falls to about 70%, which is equivalent to the participation rate of 50-year-olds in or, Britain. People who are like in their 20s in Britain participate at about a 50% rate, just to put mm-hmm. that in, in some perspective. So, mm-hmm. so just think about that. In general, it's the case that old people participate more. They're more likely to go out and vote, contribute to political parties, or be party members. And looking at some statistics of advanced industrial countries, looking at some election surveys, it looks as if people will 
vote actively up until late 80s. So if we think about people who are just about retired now, 65 in most countries, mm -hmm. we can expect these people to be active voters. And, and many of them, if you've lived to 65, you're going to live till 85. That's, that's the nature, right? Like a lot of the life expectancy, the limits on life expectancy were encountered much earlier in somebody's life. And a lot of people, like if you're relatively healthy at 65, you're going to live to 85, 90, no problem. But that means we, we can go, okay, we've got a, a, a cohort of baby boomers. It's extremely large. These people have now are retiring, have just retired in the last couple of years. These people mm -hmm. are, are, what are they, 62, 63 now through to about 72, 73. Mm -hmm. It's not that 10, right, in, in North America. And these people we can expect will be around voting for the next 20 years as a big demographic. And so I'm politically, I'm going, a lot of this is going to be baked in for the next 20 years. I think the demographics are clearly baked in for the next 20 years. Mm -hmm. And I think the economics are largely baked in for 20 years, for better or worse. In Canada, for example, the pension system's on a really good footing. But in a place like the United States, it's not. And clearly, it's not in France. It's not sustainable over 20 years. Now, after that, however, like once we start getting in the longer run, no. I mean, we have had historically periods of baby booms and baby busts. So one thing I've I re started reading about this stuff is there, there was a baby bust mm -hmm. in the interwar period, 1920s, 1930s. And, and the baby boom is sort of is relative to that baby bust. And there are a ton of books written out there about the disappearance of civilization, the extinction of, you know, this and that country and nationalities and races. Mm -hmm. And it, it didn't come to anything. I, I don't like using the word crisis here because I think it's a transition. And I think ultimately there'll be an equilibrium we'll get back to. So if we go, oh, are we just going to stop having kids? I, I doubt it. Um, mm -hmm. We're going to have a period of turbulence and then we'll find a new equilibrium. I might go, yeah, I think things are going to be fraught over 20 years. But in the long run, I'm going to go, yeah, it's, I think it's probably going to be great. There are some really polar cases. Like if you do the math in South, on the South Korean case where, where fertility is like a point eight and change. You just think what that means is you go from 100 people in South Korea. Now, mm -hmm. half of those 100 people are males and right. half of them are female. And each female is reproducing at 0.8. So 50 times 0.8 mm -hmm. gives you 40. Mm -hmm. So you go from every 100 people down to 40. You do that math again, you're down to 24. <laughs> so over 40, yeah. like, wow. But will that continue? I, I don't know. Again, you start to see equilibriating effects. If you think mm. that the cost of housing and density is the problem that's holding back South Korean women from having children, well, I, I would suspect in, in within 20 years, the housing market in Seoul is going to be substantially cheaper than it is now. You'll be able to get the mm. apartment next door at $1. You can buy houses in some villages in Spain and Italy for one euro now. Yeah. So that's why I think that there will ultimately be an equilibriating effect. And eventually, we're going to see the birth rate stabilize at something. And it might mm -hmm. be a smaller population. But I mean, really, the, I think the question, if you want to ask it normatively, is will people enjoy better lives or not? So so that's much more important than is the population big or not. And you know, people pay taxes that are very high in some countries, like mm -hmm. Denmark, much lower yeah. in other countries. But it doesn't mean that people are, are less happy in Denmark. In fact, surveys will tell you they're really happy, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so it may be that you're able to, to run a, a pension system the healthcare system with old age care 
It may be that technology gets so much better that workers are productive enough. In, in the medium run, the things work out just fine. And in that equilibrium, there will still be winners and losers, just like as in like every other society. So I was just, yeah, just wondering. Just as in, this is, yeah. Exactly. If we get to that state where they're they're managing and they're functioning, but they're they're like fragile, I was just wondering who are the losers? Is it still going to be young well, people? Well, young uh, uh, age is a very democratic thing, right? <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. you're going to be old one day too, God willing, right? Yeah. You know, outside of outside of a traumatic accident or some crazy genetic illness or something like that. All young mm -hmm. people are going to be old people, and and if you've been if you've been lucky enough been born in one of these developed countries, we know you know child mortality rates are tiny now. You know they're not like they they were 150 years ago. Most kids, most of the time, survive. You know, so age is going to be a very democratic experience in that sense. You know, you'll be old too, and this is why it's not obvious to me that like we're going to have a distributional struggle over the next 20 years about the appropriate amount of resources to spend on things old people want versus what young people want. But in the longer run, I'm, uh, I mean, I'm just sort of throw up my hands and give a question mark. You don't need as large a pension. You never needed as large a pension because your house was a lot cheaper. If the birth rates rebound, eventually you're going to have a demographic dividend, eventually, right? Mm -hmm. Where there's a lot of young productive people to pay for a small pool of old people. Mm -hmm. And technology is a wild card here. It's a real wild card. I mean, I, yeah. I read in the, the BBC, they just did this, uh, the science column, um, how they used, changed a chromosome from a male mouse from XY to XX. And so they could read the mouse with itself. I mean, oh, just yeah. think about that. Yeah. Now, now out of your hundred people, it's not mm -hmm. just 50 of them who can reproduce mm -hmm. it. It's all hundred. Okay. Even if mm -hmm. your birth rate is 0.8, mm -hmm. it's just a dramatically different picture. It's a kind of weird thing. So I don't like you start getting into crazy futuristic scenarios here that I think start to me as a political scientist being sort of outside the realm of my purview. We know from historical experience that demography is just not destiny. It just isn't. It places a constraint for a while on things, on economics and politics, but then societies adapt. Sometimes they adapt, be it by having fewer kids. Sometimes they adapt by having more. And social mores will tend to change along with it. Uh, if you push, if you really had to push me, I'm sort of ultimately an economic determinist on this. If technology is sufficient to generate economic growth to a certain level, then fewer people yeah. could enjoy just the same GDP per capita as people now. And in that sense, I'm going, their lives could be equally good. Forget In just the pure economic terms, they could have equally good lives. Mm -hmm. And of course, that, that fails to account for other things that may improve people's well-being. People might prefer, if you, if you ask people in Seoul or Tokyo now, they might really look forward to a Seoul or a Tokyo that's much less densely populated. They might go, oh, this is great. I'll have a bigger house. I can enjoy yeah. the outside more. We don't need all these buildings. We can convert some of them to parks. So all those things might be great. The other thing that, that technology could really help us with is drugs to prevent um, mental decline in old age. Because mm -hmm. it's one thing to say that, oh, well, we're going to raise the entire retirement age up to 74 or something like that. Mm -hmm. But it's another, if most of those people who are in that 65 to 74-year-old cohort, they still have to be productive, like from an economic perspective. And, and it's, it's simply unrealistic to expect somebody who's 70 
to be lugging big two by fours on a construction um, site. But if they're if they're mentally acute, there's lots of things they could do, right? Mm -hmm. And so to the extent that we develop treatments for dementia, old age decline, and that sort of stuff, we could maintain a lot of old people in the active economy, right? And so, yeah. and so I think these are these are things that technology could make a, a super huge difference. And we've seen in, in the past, uh, most economists and economic historians will tell you like, you know, you shouldn't bet against human ingenuity on this. Time and time again, from Malthus onward, the doomsday scenarios that are predicted by some people have proven false. That yeah. doesn't mean these demographic transitions are not bumpy or turbulent. Um, but that's not the same thing as saying they're dystopian and inevitably going to end with sort of human extinction or a war of all against all. I mean, I, I just don't think that mm -hmm. that's going to be the case. Um, yeah. I think there's going to be turbulence. Yeah, there's going to be turbulence. But I also think like humans are much more adaptable than people like to give them credit for. Yeah. And we've talked about that, right? We've, we talked about how immigrant families from developing world come where family size is larger mm -hmm. in normative terms it's in actual and in normative terms like as in how many kids people desire it's much larger than in many developed countries when they move to those developed countries and immigrate there their kids very quickly adopt the norms of the the country they emigrated to right so i mean yeah. that happens within 20 years maybe less right Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I think this th these adaptations can be very, very fast. Even, even though policies to encourage more fertility are very limited in their effectiveness in the short run, I think in the long run, eventually, like I don't think everybody's going to die out. I think eventually what's going to happen is we'll ideally end up at a situation where every woman can have as many kids as she wants. I mean, it seems mm -hmm. to me that if you want it in normative terms, you know, why leave men out of it too? If you can have the technology in theory, Mm -hmm. Men could have as many kids as they want to. Okay, then that would be great. Uh, that would be a, an optimistic scenario. And we're going to have to change. I think the real issue for political scientists is that it's going to be a conversation about the nature of the welfare state and how it's currently constructed and how it will have to adapt over the next 20 years. And that's right. going to be where the political conversation is. It's not just going to be about pensions. They're going to dominate. It's going to be that the money for pensions is going to come from things like education, which is a good mostly consumed by the young. It's going to be things that mm -hmm. inside certain budgeting envelopes like healthcare, money is going to be taken from some areas that are devoted to or, or mostly consumed by the young. And it's going to go to things like gerontology. I think that's sort of that's sort of inevitable. And I think that's just because we're going to have this large chunk of older voters around for a while. I think that is a perfect note to end on. I don't want to take too much of your time, but thank okay. you so much for doing this. I learned a lot during this discussion. Yeah, this is good for me. It made me go back and look at what I've read. I'm eventually going to write a book on this. And so oh. this mm -hmm. has got me start, starting to put, put all my notes together and start make, making me clarify my thinking. So mm -hmm. it was really helpful. Well, I'm glad Thanks, I could Tom. be of help. <laughs>